Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome to the Core Anesthesia Podcast. I'm Sachi. And I'm Rhea. Together in this care plan series, we're diving into the intricate world of anesthesia, tackling those tough cases that keep you on your toes in the operating room. As experienced CRNAs with a passion for teaching and mentoring, we're here to break down the complexities of challenging procedures, giving you the need-to-know information. Each episode, we dissect specific cases, exploring anesthesia techniques, case considerations, pharmacology, and much more. We've teamed up with Cole and Tanner for these care plan episodes to share our expertise and insights. So whether you're a student aiming to build a strong foundation or a professional seeking advanced insights, join us as we navigate the intricacies of anesthesia practice. Welcome to another care plan episode. Today, we are going to be discussing thoracotomy cases. Now, thoracotomies can be performed for a variety of thoracic or cardiovascular surgeries. A common procedure is a wedge resection. A common procedure is a wedge resection, which is when a small wedge-shaped portion of the lung is removed. Then there's a lobectomy where you're removing the entire lobe. This can be performed open or through a less invasive method using a small camera called BATS or a video-assisted thoracotomy. If it's for lung cancer, these patients usually have a smoking history. So their airway can be really irritable. They can have increased secretions. They're at the risk for hypoxia and bronchospasm. Overall, these cases are really exciting. And we're going to dive deep into some things you need to be thinking about. So Rhea, why don't you go ahead and talk to us about preoperative considerations for these patients? Yeah. So like you mentioned, a lot of these patients, especially if this procedure is for lung cancer, they do have significant pulmonary disease. So this could be manifested by decreased functional residual capacity, impaired gas exchange, and a BQ mismatch. A lot of times we are getting pulmonary function tests before surgery and looking in that to kind of give us a clue as to what type of lung disease they have, how severe it is, and if they're at maybe um, risk for remaining intubated after the procedure. There are several ways to optimize patients. So you can suggest that patients do smoking cessation for four to six weeks. Patients can use an incentive spirometer to help with their lung capacity and treat or control any other underlying pulmonary diseases such as asthma or COPD using steroids and beta-2 agonists like albuterol. Yes, these patients typically, they're typically smokers, you know, giving them a preoperative albuterol, you know, before you take them back is probably wise, you know, making sure you take note of what steroids they're on too as well. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So these are big cases. What types of anesthetics can we do for these thoracotomy procedures? Well, yeah, obviously it's going to be general anesthesia with an endotracheal tube. And there are different types of pain management techniques that you can give in addition to general anesthesia. We can do a thoracic epidural for pain management, or the surgeon can go in and do different types of regional blocks, such as an intercostal block. One lung ventilation is always required for a thoracotomy. And we accomplish this using one of two techniques. We could either use a double lumen tube, 
or we could use a bronchial blocker. But most of the time we're using a double lumen tube. And the purpose of using this tube is to collapse and isolate the operative lung in order to provide the surgeon with optimal surgical exposure. So in this episode, we're going to t- discuss thoracotomy. However, just remember that double lumen tubes and bronchial blockers can use, be used for a variety of thoracic procedures, such as mediastinal mass resection or different types of esophageal procedures as well. So before we dive into the case, let's talk briefly about just double lumen tubes in general. So these double lumen tubes are pretty neat. They're they're massive. They're these huge tubes, and they are bifurcated into a bronchial lumen and a tracheal lumen, each of which can provide ventilation to a single lung. It's placed through the vocal cords into the trachea, and the shorter tracheal lumen terminates in the trachea, and the second longer lumen extends into either the left or the right main bronchus. The double lumen tube is um, designed to be either left or right, um, depending on the bronchus or the bronchial lumen that you want it to terminate in. But most of the time, I would say the majority of cases, especially all the ones that I've done, we've all used a left-sided double lumen tube, regardless of the side that you are going to be working on, because you can isolate either side, even if it's sitting in the left side. And this is usually used more frequently because of the anatomy of the right lobe. So the right lobe has the um, the right side of the lung has three lobes. The right upper lobe, the offshoot is very, very close to the carina. So if you put a tube into the right lobe, you're going to block off that lobe really easily. A right double lumen tube is specially designed because there is an orifice um, along the bronchial tube that aligns with that offshoot um, in order to, to ventilate the right upper lobe. But most of the time we're using a left uh, double lumen tube. Each lumen has a cuff that is inflated to create a seal, so you need two syringes. Usually the bronchial cuff is going to take a smaller syringe, like a 3 to 5 ml syringe, and then the tracheal cuff is a normal 10 ml syringe. Lastly, the ventilated lung, which is the lung that is closest to the bed when you're in the lateral position, is referred to in a couple ways. So you can either call it the dependent lung or the non-operative lung, as that is the lung that is going to get more blood flow. And we'll talk about this in the positioning section. We try not to use the terms up lung and down lung because that gets confusing. Are you referring to the position um, in space, or are you referring to whether the lung is inflated or deflated? So we tend to stick to those terms, independent, dependent, operative, non-operative lung. The last thing I want to mention about, you know, just normal lung physiology is that you have this, um, mechanism called HPV or hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction. This is a protective mechanism for your body. So when your portion of your lung has hypoxia or less oxygen, it will compensate by constricting that area and diverting the blood flow to maybe an area of the lung that is better oxygenated. But when you increase your volatile agent, to a MAC above one, that's going to interfere with this mechanism of HPV. So the 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 compensatory um, mechanism that you need during this type of surgery is going to be, you know, altered when you have a really, really high MAC. So that is going to um, increase the VQ mismatch that's caused by one lung ventilation.
There are several monitors or devices that we need intraoperatively for these cases. We already talked extensively about grabbing that double lumen tube. Typically, we use a size 37 for females and 39 for males. We're probably going to need an A-line for close blood pressure management, and we're going to be drawing frequent ABGs. We're going to draw an ABG after we initiate that one lung ventilation. Um, also, as far as devices goes, you're going to need to grab the fiber optic bronchoscope to confirm placement of that double lumen tube. So you want to make sure you have that in the room. We also use a large Kelly clamp to clamp the operative lung. You're going to need that 3 ml syringe, the 10 ml syringe, not too different than what we regularly grab. Also, the double lumen tubes come with a long suction catheter. So, you know, typically we use that and then we keep it around or you want to have extras, but typically people will tape the packaging for that long suction catheter to the bed kind of have it handy because you're going to be sectioning the patient throughout the case. We also are going to need that epidural kit um, because if we need to do a thoracic epidural for these patients, you want to make sure you grab that beforehand as well. As far as blood loss goes, these cases can be moderately bloody, 200 to 500 mLs. You want to have a type and cross. You want to have a neodrip available as well. You're going to want to have a second IV just in case you do run into blood loss intraoperatively. And as far as positioning goes, these patients are going to be in the lateral decubitus position. We are going to need an axillary roll. Remember, we don't want that actually in the axilla itself, so slightly below it. We also are going to have to have some blankets ready to put under the patient's head because we're going to turn them laterally and we want to make sure that head is neutral. So Rio, what about some anesthetic considerations intraoperatively for these patients? Yeah, so normally if this patient, especially if they have irritable airways, they're smokers, we like to use sevoflurane as the gas of choice because it is the least irritable to those airways, as opposed to, you know, fluorine is extremely irritable. We want to have a fiber optic bronchoscope ready to verify the placement of the double lumen tube after we intubate the patient. So what I typically do is I will place the tube into the trachea, and then I'll insert the fiber optic bronchoscope into the tube and guide it into the bronchus. I don't typically blindly, you know, put it into that space, but other people do. They do a technique where they intubate and they kind of twist and push as, and, and hope for the best <laughs> and, and hope that it lands in, in the bronchus. But I typically don't do that. I think what other people do is we take the fiber optic scope, we take a look, make sure that we're oriented correctly. So you're, I look at the airway as a tunnel, the, the area against the esophagus is going to be flat. The area um, that is anterior, you will see looks more rounded and um, you won't see the tracheal rings. And so that's when you know that your AP position is correct. And then you, I take the fiber optic scope, stick it into the left bronchus, and then guide the tube over top of that into the correct position. You can either stick it down the tracheal side and, and watch it, you know, physically guide it into that position as well. We are going to next need a really large Kelly clamp, and we use this to clamp the operative lung. So if you're working on the right side, you're going to be clamping, and you have a left double double lumen tube, you can be clamping the tracheal side of the tube. If you're working on the left lung, you're going to be clamping the bronchial side of the tube. We are 
probably the most concerned during this case about the oxygenation status. So we will constantly be communicating with the surgeon regarding the oxygenation, keeping close eye on the pulse ox, and letting the surgeon know if we need to ventilate that operative lung. But before we even get to that point, there's lots of other techniques that we can do to kind of prevent that. Because once you start inflating the operative lung, then you're decreasing surgical time um, because now the surgeon can't work on that lung. So there are other things you could do. You can apply PEEP to the dependent lung. So that's the lung that's being um, you know, ventilated. You can apply CPAP to the independent lung. Um, there are you know, a lot of other things that you can do before you get to the point where you are inflating the lung. Okay. We can do even recruitment breaths to mm-hmm. that dependent lung. Um, you put the patient on 100% oxygen, kind of turn that APL valve a little bit, kind of, mm-hmm. you know, kind of give a little bit of a valsalva. Um, that helps a lot. We'll see our O2 saturations hovering mid 80s and you do a recruitment breath and you'll hear it go do, 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 and it'll yep, come back yep. up. Sometimes it doesn't last for very long and you're kind of doing that throughout the case. But Mm -hmm. these thoracic surgeons, they're attuned to that pulse ox tone just like we are. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. they'll sometimes peek over and say, you're all right. You need to take a break for a second and, you know, let's take the opportunity. Okay. Yep. Let's go ahead. So usually, you know, we want to communicate with the surgeon before we get started. Hey, what are we going to tolerate for the O2 sat here? What's our kind of threshold? I find that most thoracic surgeons are very reasonable. You know, they, mm-hmm. they get it. They know we're like operating was just one long patient, super sick. And there have been cases where I've been, we've done five minutes at a time. You know, I've done, mm-hmm. you know, five, five minutes, they do five minutes and we have to do that. until you get through the case. So that's just something that you, you may have to anticipate. Mm-hmm. As far as um, tidal volumes, it is usually based on ideal body weight. So about four to five mLs per kilo. You really want to limit any kind of pressure on the single lung. So you want to use pressure control as opposed to volume control and set your peak pressures to 30 or below. You want to adjust your respiratory rate to keep your end tidal as normal as you can. Um, like we said, add a little bit of peep to that ventilated lung usually keep the FiO2 around 100%. Um, I like to titrate down if I can, but most of the time you're keeping it at 100% for that case. And then, um, like Sachi had said, you know, it does come with a small suction catheter, so you may have to, at times, um, suction the patient. Throughout the case also, you may have to periodically just check again with that fiber optic bronchoscope to make sure that tube hasn't migrated at all, especially after you reposition the patient. So you start out supine, you take a look, you reposition lateral, you have to take a look again, you know, listen, take a look. So, um, yeah, you know, like you said, desaturations, those recruitment breaths, um, CPAP to that non-dependent lung, and then also... I've actually taken that suction catheter myself and um, put it on the um, some oxygen tubing and put that on the independent lung, the, the one that's not being ventilated, and just have some oxygen kind of like passively flowing to those tissues, just, you know, two liters of oxygen. So post-operatively, these patients are going to have a chest tube. They're going to have a leak, and that will improve when you hook the chest tube to suction. The main thing we worry about is can we safely extubate these patients or not? Of course, preoperatively, you're going to have, you know, 
an extensive talk with them and let them know, hey, we might have to keep a breathing tube in. If you do, you're going to be sedated. You'll be comfortable always having that conversation with them, especially in cases like this when the chances are a little higher that you might have to keep them intubated. But a lot of the time we can extubate these patients. We really want to make sure two things, that they are fully reversed um, and that they have adequate pain control. I mean, thinking about how sore their rib is going to be, and they're not able to take a full deep breath, you know, their tidal volumes aren't going to be great. So we're going to sit that patient's head way up, which is I kind of, I think an underrated maneuver that as anesthesia providers, sometimes uh, we forget about, we're sitting their head way up, making sure they're fully reversed um, and making sure they're adequately controlled with their pain. We are going to be, you know, potentially using that epidural, that thoracic epidural. So make sure we're dosing that. Um, as Rhea, as you mentioned, doing an intercostal nerve block would help tremendously. The surgeons can perform a single shot injection, two dermatomes above and two below, and one at the site of the incision before closure. And some surgeons will also place an indwelling catheter as well in a subpleural or extrapleural pocket. The paravertebral nerve blocks can also help. These blocks usually last, you know, up to 24 hours. And in some of the literature, they said that these blocks um, can be nearly equivalent in efficacy to epidural anesthesia um, in the first 24 hours without the detrimental effects of that sympathectomy. So overall, Postoperatively, we really want to focus on pain control and also making sure that these patients are safe to extubate as far as their ventilation. You know, we want to make sure that their tidal volumes are adequate, that they're not going to get, uh, you know, hypercapnic and, and post-op. So really taking your time here uh, and just being pretty confident is always the safest thing. I do want to mention also when you talked about if patients need to remain intubated, they don't remain intubated with the double lumen tube. You have you can't send people uh, to to the you know the recovery room or the ICU with that double. You have to exchange it for a just regular ET tube. Most of the time, what people will use a simple tube exchanger. So it looks like a, a bougie, but it's a lot mm -hmm. longer. I think it's usually like yellow or orange. That's what it was at my facilities. And you simply place it down the tracheal side pull out the double lumen tube and then insert a regular size, you know, 8.0, 7.5 ET tube over top of that and then send the patients out like that. Um, mm -hmm. I I don't think I've really seen it done without a tube exchange. I think that is <laughs> risky, <laughs> but yep. you know, yep. people do it. Yeah. Yeah. Especially at the, you also, during the case, you don't want to give a ton of fluid for these patients with the lung patients. You don't want any chance of them you know, developing any kind of pulmonary edema during the case because you gave them lots and lots of fluid. So I would say for these patients, normovolemic for the case, or maybe even a little bit less. Overall, these cases are fun. These were my favorite types of cases to do in school. I loved placing the double lumen tubes and looking with the bronchoscope. Um, but these cases require a lot of communication um, and a mm -hmm. lot of preparation as well. That's pretty much a wrap on this Thoracotomy Care Plan episode. We will see you guys on the next one.